Hello, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Exploring Cryptocurrency. If you're here via an RSS feed, be sure to check us out on iTunes and subscribe, rate, and share with others to help spread awareness and understanding of cryptocurrency and blockchain technologies to others. You can also find articles, opinion pieces, and research analysis on our exploringcryptocurrency.blogspot.com sort of hub, and follow us on our new Twitter account at ecryptopodcast, where you can keep up with goings-on and submit questions for our weekly Q&A. I recently shared the Tron episode we did with the Tron community, and despite being well-received, a lot of people made note that they're not big fans of the iTunes platform, and I totally understand that. So I want to announce that I am going to be converting all podcast episodes to video format and will be launching a YouTube channel. Again, I don't really um, have any intentions to monetize this. This isn't really something I want to do for money. Um, this is a hobby. I like educating. I've been doing public speaking and educating about cryptocurrency for over a year now. And it's something that I love doing, and I just want to share the knowledge that I've accumulated since 2011. So YouTube seems like a logical next step in terms of exposure. So today we're going to have a really odd and fascinating episode. Before I get to that, I wanted to start off with a bit of news and trust me, this is some crazy news. I don't know how many of you out there are privy to what's been going on in Venezuela. I don't want to get too much into the politics thereof, but basically Venezuela is experiencing real unbridled hyperinflation. Their national fight currency is essentially useless. They've been using a cryptocurrency, a proprietary cryptocurrency called Petro, and that is failing. They recently tried to manipulate the actual value of this cryptocurrency, which also failed miserably. And it has been announced that the Venezuelan government is launching support for a new remittance program that supports Bitcoin and Litecoin payments. Now, there are a few hang-ups. Of course, you know, they're a government. They want to try to centralize this as much as possible by injecting themselves, if you will, as an intermediary in this process of making remittance payments. I'm actually surprised that this is not headline news because when you really, I, I recommend you just Google what's going on in Venezuela with uh, cryptocurrency. It is crazy. It is mind boggling. And this is the first step to governmental adoption of cryptocurrency as an actual acting national currency, but not in the capacity of being a government-operated stablecoin, for instance, like what we've heard U.S. might be planning. This is an actual environment in a developing country where their currency has failed and people are going to be using Bitcoin and also Litecoin in order to operate an economy. Uh, basically, what this means, guys, this is the beginning. This is where we are seeing what educators like Antonopoulos have been talking about, where developing countries are going to Bitcoin, going to cryptocurrencies because 
of hyperinflation because of political inner workings that are causing their native currency, their fiat currency, to collapse. Their economy is in the gutter right now, and Bitcoin is emerging as a way out. I always tell people in America, in a first world country, and I especially say this to people who don't like Bitcoin, they're not educated about it, they think it's a bubble, they think it's stupid, and they joke that it's not backed by anything, to which my rebuttal is, of course, well, the US dollar is not backed by gold. Most of these people have been operating under the false and erroneous assumption that the gold standard is still around when it's not been around for 60 years. But nevertheless, it's very difficult sometimes for people in developed countries like the United States to understand that 30% of the world does not have access to banking. These are people who don't even have financial autonomy or independence. They often live in corrupt environments with corrupt economic infrastructures. Cryptocurrencies are like a godsend for these people. Something as simple as Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer cash payment system that is decentralized, this can mean everything to the 30% of the people in the world who do not have access to traditional banking. They don't have the financial mobility and concessions that we in the United States or in the European Union or other developed countries have. So go ahead and check this out. I encourage you to look it up and read about it. With that said, today we are continuing our series on basics, but this episode is going to be weird. It's going to be bizarre, and it is going to be fascinating. Now, that's always fun. We've basically been going over all of the well-known projects and learning about what they are, how they work, and where they came from. Now, today, we'll be talking about Bitcoin Cash. And Bitcoin Cash is a controversial one, a long and bizarre saga of hash wars, imposters, and other strange things you wouldn't expect from what is essentially a project in computer science. But then again, John McAfee exists, so there's that. Some of you may know that there are two versions of Bitcoin Cash due to a hard fork in the network that happened recently. These two new versions are called Bitcoin Cash Satoshi's Vision and Bitcoin Cash Adjustable Block Size Cap. We will go into what those mean, what those are, and how they came to fruition. Don't fret. The original Bitcoin Cash we are about to discuss in part no longer exists, but we do need the background information here in order to understand the hard fork and its resulting two crypto assets that do exist. In fact, I think the best way to discuss the whole Bitcoin Cash saga is to just tell the history, again, the saga thereof. Because of the odd nature of this project, the best way to learn about it is by reviewing the history, and you'll understand this after I read the official description of the original Bitcoin Cash project. Now, Bitcoin Cash was described as a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system, a permissionless decentralized cryptocurrency that requires no th trusted third parties and no central bank. Hmm. Well, that sounds awfully familiar, because that's essentially the same one-liner for Bitcoin. Now, this is why we need to learn about Bitcoin Cash by reviewing its history. Bitcoin Cash essentially was Bitcoin, but with a few amendments to the software. 
A disclaimer, though, I am in no way condoning the idea that Bitcoin Cash was or is the true quote-unquote version of Bitcoin, and this is a claim within the Bitcoin Cash community that we will touch on, and it is highly controversial. So please note, I am not condoning that belief that Bitcoin Cash is the quote-unquote true Bitcoin. I do not believe that. So, why is this Bitcoin Cash description so familiar and akin to Bitcoin? This is because Bitcoin Cash itself was a hard fork from Bitcoin. In 2017, the Bitcoin network endured what is called a hard fork. And a hard fork, in short, is a permanent divergence from the previous version of a blockchain. And nodes running previous versions will no longer be accepted by the new version, so this essentially creates a fork in the blockchain whereby one path follows the new upgraded blockchain and the other path continues along the old path. Generally, after a short period of time, those on the old chain will realize that their version of the blockchain is outdated or irrelevant and they quickly upgrade to the latest version. Nowadays, a lot of exchanges like Binance and a lot of software wallets or desktop wallets will automatically update when there is a fork. But let's look at this a bit more thoroughly. Because Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are open source, meaning technically anyone can edit them or add to them, occasionally there are major changes in the blockchain protocol. These major changes will require everybody to upgrade to the newest version of the software. And like I said, nowadays exchanges and wallets typically do this automatically. But sometimes not everybody agrees with these changes. So when a consensus cannot be reached or there is a dispute about an upgrade, as we're going to see learning about Bitcoin Cash, there is what we call a hard fork. Blocks made according to a new set of rules are considered invalid according to the old rules and vice versa. This leads to a split in the blockchain. From that point, miners, those who validate transactions and users, must decide which set of rules to enforce. So now you end up with two versions of the cryptocurrency that cannot be reconciled. There is also soft forks where the resulting software are mutually compatible and the validity of the blockchain as a whole is accepted by both rule sets. Hard forks and soft forks are essentially the same thing in that when a cryptocurrency's existing code is changed, an old version remains while a new version is created. However, with a soft fork, only one blockchain will remain valid as users adopt the update. Both forks create a split, but a hard fork creates two blockchains, and a soft fork is meant to result in one. So to demarcate the difference between a hard fork and a soft fork, it is as simple as that. So we have a hard fork in the Bitcoin network in 2017 that results in Bitcoin Cash, known by the ticker symbol BCH. But this is something that first came to light much, much earlier. The fundamental argument behind Bitcoin Cash's emergence traces back to the origins of Bitcoin itself, the scalability debate. 
It was the inability to come to a consensus over increasing the block size limit that ultimately made Bitcoin Cash fork off the Bitcoin network. And as early as mid-2009, just after the Bitcoin network had launched, the block size limit already formed a debating point on the Bitcoin Talk online forum, which was really at the time the hub for discussion and discourse among developers, programmers, computer scientists, and thinkers about where the Bitcoin network should go, how it could be improved, and how to prevent and mitigate foreseeable issues within the network and protocol. At the time, with Bitcoin still in its infancy, the one megabyte block size limit meant that the blockchain would have problems scaling once the network effect grew, meaning there were more nodes on the blockchain, which, as we know now, is exactly what has happened. At this time, developers in the community couldn't reach an agreement about this issue. Thus, by the time Bitcoin achieved mainstream status, the one megabyte quote-unquote attributed to Satoshi Nakamoto's original block size limit was considered de facto, but proponents of the one megabyte limit argued that larger blocks would eventually prevent individuals from running their own full nodes as only a large-scale data center would be able to verify transactions in the future, resulting in centralization of the network. And funny enough, we are kind of seeing this what with the ASIC arms race and the accessibility of running full nodes on the Bitcoin network in order to hash out algorithms in the proof-of-work consensus. Now, we fast forward back to 2017 with the Bitcoin price and popularity growing immensely. We have a nearly $20,000 Bitcoin. The network began to experience transaction backlogs. Some may remember in summer 2017, you'd have to sometimes wait days before transactions would be confirmed on the Bitcoin network. It was crazy. Um, preference was given to transactions with higher minor fees, which created a sort of bribe-like abuse of the incentivization system Nakamoto originally described in the Bitcoin white paper. This made Bitcoin appear ill-suited for microtransactions. The situation saw serious debate within the community with two main approaches suggested. One was called Bitcoin Unlimited, and the other was called Segregated Witness, or SegWit. With SegWit, part of the transaction data is stored outside the blockchain, creating room for more transactions inside a single block. You, quote, segregate the witness information from the block, hence segregated witness. Now, Bitcoin Unlimited meant completely removing the block size limit. It also meant that the network would have to hard fork, which is considered to be riskier approach since the software client would no longer be backward compatible with older versions. This plays to what we discussed while defining hard forks. Bitcoin Unlimited would mean the new software would be unreconcilable with the original Bitcoin network protocol. Miners, like the mining company Bitmain, preferred raising the block size limit given a premise that segregated witness would expose their covert ASIC-boosting algorithms, and this was, in my opinion, a little self-serving, but nevertheless, they had a large impact on the course of this fork. And then those in opposition to SegWit argued that the idea would centralize Bitcoin mining by forcing out smaller independent miners because blocks would require 
too much of any consumer-grade hardware to run a full node, that the average individual would not be able to afford the resources necessary, the hardware necessary, to run a full node on the Bitcoin network. Now, I must note that Segregated Witness also raised the block size limit to 4 megabytes, or to be more specific, the quote-unquote block weight to 4 megabytes. Block weight is, is just a term specific to SegWit and its parameters given block size is all you really need to know about that. That's definitely a conversation for another episode. Another fact to note is that the blocks mined by the Bitcoin network today are regularly over one megabyte compared to Bitcoin Cash, whose blocks are on average much smaller. So there's a bit of unclear direction here, obviously. Bitcoin Cash forked from the original Bitcoin blockchain at the beginning of August 2017 and implemented what is called replay protection immediately. Replay protection basically prevents a transaction from being valid on both blockchains, which would result in utter chaos, naturally. Um, this also meant that Bitcoin holders received an equivalent amount of Bitcoin Cash, as is customary of hard forks that result in a new token asset. So not all hard forks result in a new crypto asset or second crypto asset, but when they do, it's very often customary for those who hold tokens in the original blockchain to receive tokens of the new one at a ratio of one to one. So if you had one Bitcoin, you were also granted or given by, by way of airdrop one Bitcoin cash. At the same time, the majority of Bitcoin miners opted for the implementation of SegWit2x, and SegWit2x was an agreement among predominant Bitcoin companies like BitPay and Coinbase, certain exchanges, to implement segregated witness and later raise the block size limit to 2 megabytes, hence the 2x in SegWit2x. These opposing views that resulted in the 2017 Bitcoin Cash hard fork they were contingent on two distinct economic classifications. One, Bitcoin as an investment asset, and two, Bitcoin as a payment system. And which one of these two should be prioritized first? The Bitcoin cash sentiment maintained that quote-unquote Satoshi's vision, and this term is going to come to play later in our strange story, was that Bitcoin must become a cheaper and quicker alternative to fiat payments despite centralization concerns. So let's then fast forward to just a few months ago. A year after the launch of Bitcoin Cash, we have even newer camps emerging therein. Bitcoin Cash Adjustable Block Size Cap, or ticker sign BCHABC, which at the time was the largest software client for the Bitcoin Cash blockchain, announced a hard fork that was going to take place in mid-November 2018. This particular upgrade had two main goals. They wanted the introduction of non-cash transactions like smart contracts and Oracle prediction services on the blockchain, and they also wanted a new method of transaction ordering, which just refers to the coding syntax within the software's way of organizing transactions. We could get into this in another episode if any listeners want, and we could talk about topological ordering versus CTOR or canonical transaction ordering, but we don't need to get that technical today to understand Bitcoin Cash. But if you do want to hear about that, 
drop me a note on Blogspot, shoot me an email. I will provide info at the end how you could reach me, and we'll talk all about it. So now I will reiterate that not everybody supported the changes in the source code. They weren't really happy about this BCH ABC hard fork that was planned in mid-November 2018. And the opposition here, they didn't like prioritizing non-cash transactions in a blockchain that they believed should only deal with payments. So here we go again, another split in the blockchain. Now this is where our saga gets particularly interesting. Enter Craig Wright who claims to be Satoshi Nakamoto, by the way, despite ample evidence to the contrary. And besides, who would want to be Satoshi Nakamoto? I have to give a little side note. That might seem glamorous at first thought, but if you really just think about it for five seconds, you could probably enumerate a dozen reasons why you would never, if you're Satoshi, you would never want somebody to know, because I'm pretty sure the government would like to have a nice little sit-down chat with you, and you might not be heard from again. Craig Wright was basically the foremost opponent of the protocol updates proposed by BCHABC. Craig Wright gets with Calvin Ayer, who is the owner and CEO of one of the biggest Bitcoin cash mining pools, CoinGeek. And in the case of Ayer, his miners didn't like the BCHABC's transaction ordering method. Air also wanted to increase the block size limit to 128 megabytes. Wright didn't like the idea of incorporating smart contracts and oracles into the blockchain, championing most the idea that Bitcoin Cash needed to be a payment system only. Now, Wright is not the only character here. The BCH-ABC side of this conflict was heavily supported by Roger Ver whom you may know as having been heavily criticized for using his Bitcoin.com platform to trick people into thinking that Bitcoin Cash is the, quote, original Bitcoin. Remember I mentioned that at the beginning? He was labeling Bitcoin BTC as Bitcoin Core, um, the name of the most popular Bitcoin software client, and stating on his website that Bitcoin Cash was indeed the actual Bitcoin. And this actually confused a lot of newcomers to the crypto space. A lot of people got in, heard about Bitcoin, wanted to buy it, found Bitcoin.com, and went and bought Bitcoin Cash. Now that's pretty dishonest. So that is Roger Ver, who is a huge proponent of the BCH ABC side of this eventual hash wars, you'll find out. So as the scheduled fork in mid-November 2018 became very imminent, so did the infighting between these two camps, the Right Air Coalition, to combat this imminent fork, released another fork called Bitcoin Cash Satoshi's Vision, or BCHSV. Wright argued that Bitcoin Cash SV embodied Nakamoto's original vision for Bitcoin, hence Satoshi's vision. And wouldn't he know, given that he's the real Satoshi Nakamoto after all, right? <laughs> they created a Satoshi's vision mining pool client. Craig Wright was 100% behind this idea. Calvin Ayer was 100% behind this idea. And the two kind of colluded together and created their own fork version. And again, that is Bitcoin Cash Satoshi's vision. 
So I know that's a crap ton of information. So let's summarize real quick. The SV client or Satoshi's vision client of Bitcoin Cash wanted strictly a payment protocol. The Bitcoin Cash ABC camp wanted non-cash transactions like smart contracts, sort of like Ethereum. Given that these two camps are backed by major mining pools, thus began what is known as the epic Bitcoin Cash hash wars, which saw both factions vying for the right to claim the BCH ticker post-hard fork. Man, these guys really like having ownership rights of names for supporting an idea that champions decentralization, don't they? The November 18 hard fork finally arrives, and unsurprisingly, the hard fork resulted in BCH-ABC and BCH-SV. Both parties, desperate to exert dominance over the other by computing power, concentrated the bulk of their miners to their respective blockchains. The heated contest even saw Roger Ver divert Bitcoin.com pool hash power from Bitcoin mining to Bitcoin cash mining to give his side the edge. The goal? Win the hash race by becoming the longest blockchain, i.e. producing more blocks than the other one. These actions were not without consequences. It soon became apparent that there would be major losses on both sides. Barely a week after the hash rate war, both sides had burned $12 million to sustain their mining operations, which were unprofitable as the price of Bitcoin cash fell to record lows. The Bitcoin price also tanked along with the entire cryptocurrency market falling to its lowest level in over a year by market capitalization due to the 2018 market correction that we've discussed on previous episodes, and this is a result of the massive price inflations in late 2017. However, some people actually blame Craig Wright for this, arguing that his selling off of Bitcoin to fund the hash war contributed to the price crash, and because all other cryptocurrencies were, and for the most part, are tethered to the price of Bitcoin, they furthermore argued that Craig Wright crashed the entire market, all on his own. So where does this whole debacle stand now? Well, the ABC faction continues to push ahead of Satoshi's vision based on hashing power. Major cryptocurrency exchange platforms like Bittrex and Coinbase, Bitstamp, and Kraken began to assign the BCH ticker to the ABC chain. And that, my dear friends, is the story of Bitcoin Cash. So what do we really take away from this? Well, funny enough, we don't really have to go much into governance issuance. By the way, Bitcoin Cash had a circulating supply of 17.7 million coins and a max supply of 21 million coins, just like Bitcoin. And we don't even need to go into proof of work because all of these things are pretty much identical to Bitcoin. The market difference with the original hard fork and conception of Bitcoin Cash was simply an adjustment to the block size within the Bitcoin blockchain. And the second hard fork was really just a further adjustment of that, along with one side, Bitcoin Cash ABC incorporating smart contract capability, and the other, Bitcoin Cash Satoshi's vision focusing on peer-to-peer payments. In a way, Satoshi's vision is a copy of Bitcoin with amended block size. But we can learn something here, an important lesson about decentralization and self-governance. 
in a distributed system, we still have overall majority consensus. We still have consolidation of power and wealth and a tendency toward centralization by way of proof of work and the limited accessibility thereof. Is it just human nature to centralize and consolidate power? Is it just human nature for us to naturally appoint centralized governance structures and to accumulate wealth and to create hierarchies within those systems? I don't think it has to be. And I think that's the lesson that we can learn from all of this. So let's go back to a humble and brilliant figure in the Bitcoin space, our beloved Andreas Antonopoulos. He has an amazing technical manual called Mastering Bitcoin, which I highly, highly recommend. And the book cover for this has leafcutter ants on it. It seems kind of like a non sequitur. It's a little odd. So Andreas takes the time to explain this after the forward in a section called Why Are There Bugs on the Cover? He says, quote, the leafcutter ant is a species that exhibits highly complex behavior in a colony superorganism. But each individual ant operates on a set of simple rules driven by social interaction and the exchange of chemical sense, pheromones. Per Wikipedia, next to humans, leafcutter ants form the largest and most complex animal societies on Earth. Leafcutter ants don't actually eat leaves, but rather use them to farm a fungus, which is a central food source for the colony. Get that? These ants are farming! Although ants form a caste-based society and have a queen for producing offspring, there is no central authority or leader in an ant colony. The highly intelligent, sophisticated behavior exhibited by a multi-million member colony is an emergent property from the interaction of the individuals in a social network. Nature demonstrates that decentralized systems can be resilient and can produce emergent complexity and incredible sophistication without the need for a central authority, hierarchy, or complex parts. Bitcoin is highly sophisticated, decentralized trust network that can support myriad financial processes. Yet, each node in the Bitcoin network follows a few simple mathematical rules. The interaction between many nodes is what leads to the emergence of the sophisticated behavior, not any inherent complexity or trust in any single node. Like an ant colony, the Bitcoin network is a resilient network of simple nodes following simple rules that together can do amazing things without any central coordination. So perhaps this is the ethos that we need to adapt to and learn when dealing with distributed systems and decentralization of such a powerful technology as money. And maybe the hash wars and the Bitcoin cash debacle are a reminder to all of us to not go astray from the real Satoshi's vision. <laughs> So that's it, guys. That is Bitcoin Cash in a nutshell, if I could even call it that, because I know that's a lot of information, but I think we can summarize that there is a powerful philosophical message therein. There is certainly an inquiry into human nature and the human tendency or perceived tendency toward centralization, not just in technology and in finance, but just in human behavior, the construction of hierarchies, the consolidation of power, the consolidation of wealth and other such resources and things in various social institutions. I, I think that decentralization in technology and finance and distributed systems and computer science have a very interesting link to this sort of philosophical inquiry that we all kind of have to ask ourselves. 
can we adapt to a decentralized world? Can we accept an internet where things are decentralized and there are no central authorities? Can we accept a market economy that is global, that is transnational, that doesn't require middlemen to tell us how to coordinate the usage of our own resources, how to interact with each other? And it seems like the easy, simple, obvious answer is yes, but with the case of Bitcoin Cash, we can see that there are very smart, capable individuals within the cryptocurrency community. These people are developers and business magnates, entrepreneurs, people running mining pools and operations, etc. They're very capable individuals, but they are still susceptible to the intrinsic idiosyncrasies that comprise human nature. This is something that we need to be aware of. As programmers, developers, computer scientists, thinkers, users of Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and blockchain technologies, we need to remain cognizant of this lesson and to try to champion the ethos behind decentralization and distributed systems and what they can accomplish for our society at large. And that requires us to think beyond ourselves. That requires us to become proverbial nodes in this distributed system where no one individual is of preeminent importance, but the interactions between individuals, the collaborative efforts that we can have across the world together is what comprises this space and makes cryptocurrency and the blockchain communities so special. So with that said, this has been another episode of Exploring Cryptocurrency. I hope you folks enjoyed that one and found it interesting. As always, you can subscribe, rate, and share our podcast. We can be found on iTunes. Just query Exploring Cryptocurrency, or perhaps you've already found us there. We are also going to be launching a YouTube channel just for increased accessibility. It's a much more accessible platform and it doesn't require anybody to download a software like iTunes or a podcast listener or even an RSS feed reader. So I will be announcing the YouTube channel soon. And in the meantime, be sure to follow our new Twitter page at eCryptoPodcast. Go ahead and check that out. You can also submit questions for our weekly Q&A, and we will get to those every Monday. That's it, folks. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next time.